And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 106 today. Uh, we've tried at least 106 times to get this out there, but uh, uh, we have, 106 is B. <laughs> we, have, we have episode 106, and we're going to be talking about Gobekli Tepe and um, ancient symbolism with Laird Scranton. Laird is the author of a bunch of books, some of which would be uh, Point of Origin, uh, Science of the Dogon, um, Mystery of Scarabray, and there's a whole long list of other books that he's written as well. They're down below the video in the link. Check them out. Buy his books. They're awesome. And uh, thanks for coming back on. Laird, how are you? Oh, I'm pretty good. <laughs> pretty good today. <laughs> but after uh, we rehearsed this 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> how are you? Good, good. Uh, and also, we're going to try and get to it. I don't know if we are, but we'll try and get to it. We're going to try and do an extra... 10 minutes if we can with Laird for our Patreon and I'll post it up later. Check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive content. Um, but uh, again, thanks for coming back on Laird. Uh, many tries here, but I think we've got it for whatever reason. The uh, the gods and the tech gods were holding us back, but we're, we're back in the game now. Yeah, well, that's good. Well, I'm happy to be back on. I'm glad you invited me on. <laughs> It's always interesting, <laughs> one way or the yes, other. Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so we talked a little bit about Gobekli Tepe before, how um, it was discovered in the uh, 90s by Klaus Schmidt and his team. Uh, previously, it had been discovered, but they didn't know what it was in 1963 by the University of Chicago, so they kind of didn't really investigate it too much. Um, but from that discovery... You have tons of people talking about it. You have people like you writing books. You've got Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson going on Joe Rogan, and millions and millions of people listening to this kind of stuff. Uh, did you ever think that these topics and these um, megalithic sites would get the kind of recognition that they're getting now? Or Because um, you've, you've probably been in the game for a while now, so what do you think about all that? Yeah, no, I never... Uh... Never really expected that it would move beyond um, a, a fairly fringe audience, but but then um, I never really anticipated that I would ever ha have any kind of a significant opinion about any of this stuff. I'm I'm, I'm the most surprised about this of of anyone. <laughs> but um, I go back to the Tampa site is um, is particularly significant. It was uh, John Anthony West uh, considered it uh, significant because it lent credibility to his and Robert Schock's perspective that the Sphinx could be older than people thought. Mm. Uh, the the uh, argument against their point of view was, well, so where, show me the pot shard was the famous line. You know, where Show me that there's any evidence of, of organized culture before 2400 B.C. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the Tepe provides that by about you know more than 6,000 years earlier. You have somebody at Gobekli Tepe site um, raising megalithic stone circles with beautiful carved carvings of animals and of symbols um and doing so in in a locality where all sorts of other civilizing skills seem to have emerged at about the same time we we have cultivation the first cultivation of agricultural seeds the first domestication of animals um the earliest practice of metallurgy that we know of and the site is so early 
that it actually precedes the first evidence we have of the tools that would be required to do any of that, hmm. <laughs> which yeah, is one of the confusions. Um, you know, of right. course, th those are the big reasons of, of what turns up archaeologically. For yeah. sure, for sure. Um, in y your book, Point of Origin, you suggest that this was, a, like you mentioned, a place where people would come to learn animal husbandry or metallurgy or, um, you know, different parts of the early parts, I guess, of, of civilization. Now, do you think that that was known back then, that this was this hub? Or do you think that that was by accident? It was just some meeting place that was in um, maybe... Uh, geographically um, convenient to a lot of the stuff that was going on in the area? Well, one way of knowing that is to look, uh, I, I thought it, during my process to look at the ancient Egyptian word for that region of the world. You know, the Greeks referred to it as Cappadocia and the ancient Egyptian dictionary has a reference to that region and the name they assigned to it was Get Pet Kai. It's a, this is an archaic Egyptian word form. Uh, when I say archaic, I mean that the glyphs are of, that are used to write the word are not formulated, formulated in the same way as later words, and sometimes they're not pronounced the same way. But I thought Petkai, given you know, 6,000 or more year span of time, is a reasonable approximation of Gobekli. Hmm. But the nice thing about the ancient Egyptian words is that um, my my understanding of how the words work is the same as how ancient Chinese words worked. That 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 each glyph actually represents a concept. We can demonstrate that to be likely likely to be true because most languages are only trying to represent about forty sounds, phonetic sounds, and we have four thousand Egyptian glyphs. So sh clearly, something besides phonetics was going on with those those glyphs. Right. Well, when we uh, modernize the pronunciation of that name, get petkai, um, we end up with a word that's pronounced het petkaya. Het means sanctuary or shrine. Pet was a, a god of space. Ka was the god of the embrace. And ya was the Hebrew god of light. So we uh, seemingly have a name here that's formulated on the name of three gods. Mm. Now, the way the, the word's configured, it begins with a picture of a shrine, and it ends with a picture of, of mountains. And so it's easy to infer from the name that it's describing a mountaintop shrine. So in answer to your question, it's clear to me that in early times, early Egyptian times, they understood that there had been a shrine of some importance on this, in this area. Right. And they associated it with deities. Right. Uh, now... Those words, those names of the deities also have meanings. Um, as I said, Pet is a god of space. Ka represents the concept of an embrace. And Ya is a concept of light. So we can interpret the word to mean shrine of space embracing light. Now, the ancient definition of a sanctuary or a shrine in symbolic terms is this is the place where non-materiality comes together with materiality. So the ancient Egyptian name hits that point also, that not only does it look like the name of a shrine, but it's being defined in the very root terms of what a, a sanctuary is supposed to be. Sure. And that's that. Um, well, first of all, also, too, I think the, the term Gobekli Tepe um, simply refers to as a potbelly hill or 
pregnant hill, something along those lines. Um, when you, in your research and, um, books that you've written, that's been a common theme is this idea of the, the material and the non-material and the meeting of the two, um, and the symbolism that you find. Um, so what, what about that concept, um, interested you or what about that concept did you find across all the ancient civilizations and was there, what was the correlation? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the event that sparked my writing of the point of origin book, the point of origin book ended up sort of uh, what, what happens with me is that the lion's share of what I research ends up in a conceptual stack of things that I have no ability to explain or connect anything. I have all these loose ends that are just sort of sitting there. Mm-hmm. And then every so often, the right puzzle piece will fall into place, and an entire book's worth of references will suddenly make sense to me out of that that stack. Mm-hmm. And so, I go back to the Tepe book, that's what happened. Uh, the way it happened is, one July day, I thought I was, um, one morning I was thinking, thought I was researching half a dozen different questions for other friends and researchers. Um, and this one morning, six different threads of research I was trying to do came together at once. They, were, they all resolved based on words found in a single column of a single page of the Egyptian Hieroglyphic Dictionary. Wow. And the seventh wow. word on that page was an Egyptian word for pillar that can also mean embrace. Hmm. Now, looking at the Gobekli Tepe side, I had always been, been trying to figure out what are the, what's up with those weird arms that emerge out of the side of one of the pillars. They're sort of um, low-relief carved arms that, that pass down the sides of the pillar and down uh, the ha- with hands that wrap around the end that touch at the fingertips. They bend, the hands bend at the knuckle around the end of the pillar and touch at the fingertip. Right. Suddenly I understood, because the Egyptian word for embrace also means pillar, that someone was trying to represent the concept of an embrace there. Then that spurred me to go look at it, Egyptian words for embrace, and I discovered that there are a whole slew of them. In fact, there are words for embrace that are pronounced just like other important cosmological terms for almost every concept. You know, every stage of this system, symbolic system of creation has a word that also means embrace. This is a hugely important concept. Sure. I was also fascinated by the fact that that whoever had rendered that on the pillar didn't have, seemed to either not have the artistic sensibility or the artistic skill to render it in a way that was emotionally, that conveyed the emotion of, of a warm embrace. The last thing I would have thought that a representative was a warm embrace. It right. looks very cold and sterile. So, um, in, in terms of the book, that was, that was one of the key entry points that got me embarked on this process. Sure. Um, sure. Now, when you look at the other elements that existed to go back to the tap, you know, we have, a a slim um, set of evidence to work from at Gobekli Tepe to to base interpretations on, as compared to someplace like ancient Egypt, where you know every every step you take, you trip over a, a pot chart. Right. The uh, Tepe, we have some pictures, we have some carvings, we have um, some megalithic pillars, we have some arch- uh, some archaeological evidence. We have no written text because it's six thousand years before the first written text. And we have some enigmatic enigmatic symbols. Now, as it turns out, 
this concept of an embrace is one of the ways that a relationship is described anciently between a non-material universe and a material universe. Mm-hmm. That the relationship to a non-material twin universe is described as a, a familial, a, a friendly or a warm familial embrace. It's like hugging your sibling or hu- hugging your best friend. Um, it turns out that many of these other symbols represent the same concept. An easy one to get wrap our, our hands around here is our brains around is there's a, a symbol that's repeatedly carved in various places that looks like the English letter H. Okay. Well, I tripped uh, up a Masonic article, an article in a Masonic magazine from the nine, early 1900s where the author describes the H symbol as it's understood in the Masonic tradition, and, and he flatly says it represents the coming together of non-material and material energies. Yes, I just pulled up the imagery for the H on some of the blocks, too. Um, so you're saying that this ties into your research with the idea that the one side of the uh, the vertical line of the H would represent the one, let's say, the non-material, and then the other vertical line would represent the material, and the line in between is some sort of gateway or connection between the two right. re- realms? Yeah, yeah, right, precisely. It's, it's the same configuration you see on the back of a dung beetle who represents the concept of non-material or non-existence yeah. coming into existence. I love so, now... Now, on one of the images you have, um, just below the H symbol, there's also um, a figure of what looks like a sun glyph with a parentheses underneath it. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you can find that. Now, that symbol in the Dogen tradition represents, it depicts the star Sirius coming together with our sun. Now... From their perspective, the same ancient cosmological tradition, the the image of a sun is an icon of materiality, and Sirius becomes an icon of non-materiality. So that symbol, when you bring those two figures together, is another way of representing the concept of non-materiality and materiality coming together. Yes. Yeah, so, which again is the root concept of a of a sanctuary. So on the Gobekli Tepe T pillars, they're called T pillars for everybody out there. Um, but on the T pillars, some of the T pillars have the H where it looks like an H, and then some of them have them tilted sideways. So, it, it, do you know? Um, do you know anything about that? Is that something? Is there a reason behind that, or has any of the archaeologists um, came out and described what they thought was going on there? Or? I haven't heard any other perspectives on what these symbols mean uh, from from any researcher. Um, my insights into it come because, have, having looked at comparative traditions, we see numbers of them talking about the same things in the same way, and these symbols happen to touch on, on right. those. Okay. Um, right. Now, there's another set of symbols from Gobekli Tepe that convey the same idea. Okay. Um, this is a concept that's probably easy, most easily seen and early, most early uh, seen in the most earliest era in ancient China. The earliest depictions of the Chinese mother god, creator god, she's holding a tool, a compass mm-hmm. that is used to draw circles. She uses she holds it to measure the circularity of the heavens. Circularity is uh, an attribute that's assigned to non-materiality. 
he is holding uh, an architect square or carpenter square and squareness is an attribute that's associated with materiality. Mm -hmm. So the idea of squaring a circle is another metaphor for non-materiality coming together with materiality. Mm-hmm. So any square a circle becomes a symbol for that. You look at the Gobekli Tepe period uh, pillars, and you see what are often described as handbags. It's a figure of a square with a semicircle above it. Yeah, that's. Uh, that's, that's I'm pulling it up right now. Pillar forty-three, uh, I believe, the vulture stone. Right, and so it has these these depictions of. A circle reconciled with the square. That, for me, that is another way of expressing the, the concept of a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Moreover, in ancient times in Iraq, um, three domes became an icon for a sanctuary, and these figures uh, define define a, an image that looks a lot like a dome. Mm. Uh, even in modern day science, when they're describing the formation of mass. The geometric figure that's often used to explain how it works is the image of a hemisphere or a dome. This is uh, many of these ancient symbols aligned side by side, intuitively side by side with scientific uh, depictions of how things work. So do you think this is the earliest science and evidence of like... um you know, masonry or like the precursor to Freemasonry, that kind of a thing? I think this is the common precursor to all of the classic uh, symbolic traditions and religious traditions that we are familiar with. Hmm. All of them. Gotcha. That, um, that Jung was trying to explain how, how is it that we see all these, these archetype symbols repeated in culture after culture, even cultures that are widely distant from each other who are not thought to have ever had any contact with each other are expressing these concepts in the same way using the same symbols, similar rituals, similar words. How can that be? Right. Well, from my view, the way that could be is what the Dogen and the Buddha say, that in ancient times, someone who understood concepts of creation as science deliberately brought groups of students from all around the world, regions all around the world, to instructional sites and gave them education in these concepts and then sent them back to teach everybody else. That's a paradigm you see repeated in myth all over the world of the, the eight quasi-mythical ancestors who come bringing civilizing skills. Absolutely. And also to point out, too, with the relief carvings, um, a lot of these, uh, well, the T-pillars are relief carved, meaning that they're cut away to produce like a 3D image of a lot of these that are animals, there's symbols, there's, uh, as you mentioned, the hand ancient handbags, which are found all over um, ancient symbolism across the world. Um, what do you think? Because, I mean, there's different theories. There's uh, Martin Sweatman's um, theory that correlates with uh, archaeo uh, astronomy. Um, and there's some people that... Uh, you know, I, I think Graham Hancock's mentioned the ancient handbags could symbolize some sort of ancient knowledge that uh, was lost or possibly even psychedelics, so something along those lines. Um, what do you think? Because the ancient handbags are found across. Yeah, that's a big mystery. They're ancient Assyrian um, 
you know, reliefs and, and all across, even South American stuff that they're everywhere. Australian, they're Aboriginal, they're everywhere. Right. Well, the Dogon cosmology, uh, there's an, uh, the French anthropologist who studied the Dogon um, wrote a book that is essentially a diary. It's called, uh, in English, it's called Conversations with Ogotimele. It's a diary of his 33 days of instruction by a Dogon priest in his, his own personal initiation into the Dogon tradition. And at the point where the priest is trying to um, explain concepts that relate to what is essentially a, a stupa shrine, hmm. the blind priest um, reaches back into his hut and feels around for a woven basket. Um, a woven basket that's square on the bottom and round at the top. And he pulls it out of the hut and sets it upside down on the ground and says, here's the shape that's trying to be represented here. Mm-hmm. And the Dogen even referred to the cosmology as the basket cosmology. Well, you go to Polynesia, to the Maori tradition in um, New Zealand, and there's a myth that's preserved of uh, a departmental god named Tane who ascends to the gods and returns with three baskets of knowledge. So on one level of understanding, the concept of a basket or even three baskets becomes symbolic of instructed knowledge. Hmm. Um, on another level, it becomes symbolic, the concept of a basket becomes symbolic of the shrine. If you go to ancient Egypt, the earliest portable shrines they had in ancient Egypt were woven in the shape that was squared on the bottom and ra- had a rounded sort of arching top on it, on the top that became the sort of the pattern for later um, shrines in Egypt. They have uh, models of these, they're called Sez, S-E-H. Okay. And um, there's several different forms of them. So um, one of the things we have to get used to when talking about ancient concepts is that nothing means just one thing. There's, right. a, there's a reason for that. Okay, to begin with, when we're t- anciently talking about concepts of creation, they're really talking about three different themes of creation. One refers to how the universe formed. Another refers to how matter forms. And the third one refers to processes of biological reproduction. Now, to a Dogen priest, those three processes are so inherently similar to each other that they simultaneously describe all three themes using a single progression of symbols. Mm. What that means is that for any given symbol, we can't really legitimately ask, what does this symbol represent? We really have to ask, to be proper, we have to ask, what does it represent if we're talking about biology? Or what does it represent if we're talking about the universe? Or what does it represent if we're talking about matter? Right. To give you an example, go back to that, that hemisphere shape. If we're talking about matter, the hemisphere shape represents the initial expansion of mass. If we're talking about biological reproduction, it represents the expansion of a woman's a mother's womb as the baby grows. Mm-hmm. These are parallel stages of two creative processes that have equivalency to each other and can be represented ac- accurately and intuitively by the same symbol. And that happens throughout the, throughout the system, up and down the system. It's, a, it's as if someone who was crazy smart was showing off. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I'm, I'm going to do here, here just to show you how crazy smart I am. I'm going to show you this in one sequence of symbols that simultaneously gives you biology, gives you uh, astro astrophysics, it gives you <laughs> um, quantum physics right. all in one yeah, go. Beautiful. And it's not that weird of a concept. I know um, Aristotle broke down his metaphysics to three categories as well. One was ontology, two was natural um, uh, theology or the belief in a god or gods, and then three was like um, basically material science or natural science. So. Um, yeah, it's not that weird of a concept. I don't think. No, that... actually, I like that, that that train of thought too, because it kind of uh, emphasizes that everything's connected in some kind of way or another. Right, and in ways that continue to surprise me. Um, things that I never in the world, in my in my wildest dreams, would have thought of as symbolic of something are. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and. Um, and uh, the Dogen compared the process I'd been going through to peeling layers of an onion. Hmm. That you peel one back expecting you're going to be at the hit bottom of the onion, and there's another skin there to be peeled back. Absolutely. <laughs> and it just we're keeps also, going on and on and on. We're also approaching this from our viewpoint of in our time and space, where back then we don't really know what was going on. So, Right, that's true. And um, it looks like, okay, we know that oral language preceded written language. But what's clear to me is that the original language of this symbolic tradition was symbolism. Right. There are, are ways, if you understand how the symbolism works, that it is far and away superior method of communicating things um, than written language. Uh, Socrates, one of my books opens with a quote via Plato of Socrates saying, that he considered written language to be a degradation of human thought. Yeah. Yep. That yeah. That written language was a way for a person who didn't truly understand the subject to represent themselves as an expert. Uh, an example I can give is if you, were, if you wanted to learn to bind leather-bound books, would you rather learn it from somebody who had been doing it for 30 years, or would you rather learn it off the Internet? Right. Uh, and we do have a written lot of people now, though, that would choose the written or the directions or they want to watch uh, um, or re read the instructions or whatever. But yeah, I mean, you're right. Like why not? And to that point, isn't that how we got most of the knowledge that we have from ancient people pre um, I guess even Sumerian or however ba far back you want to go for the earliest writing would be oral traditions. I mean, that's how a lot of this stuff's been passed on, whether it be the aboriginals or, um, indigenous peoples, certain areas. So, I mean, the oral tradition is super important. Right. And one of the confusions I faced in my process was coming to the realization that the cultures that never adopted a written language, like the Dogen, did a far superior job of preserving the intimate details of this tradition than ones who wrote it down. And part of the reason for that is the act of writing a thing down sort of absolves a person from having to remember it. Right. Uh, if you have to keep it all in your head, and if you have to be able to explain it back to somebody in a way that makes sense, you really have to master the material. And being able to write it down ends up being a crutch. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, when you, I want to pull something up here. I'm going to pull up. I know you guys can't see it, but I'm going to pull up. Um, there's that correlation that uh, between the artwork on ancient Ab- or aboriginals and the yeah yeah uh, the one of the T pillars. It's a symbol. It looks like two half circles uh, separated with a line through the middle. Now, what do you think about that symbol? Um, do you know which one I'm talking about by chance? I, I know which one you're talking about. I don't have an absolute fix on the meaning of that symbol, but it's in the mindset of how the Dogen represents uh, relationships between um, universes or um, stars. So if I had to guess... Um, it may be another way of representing the same concept of, of energy. Um, That's what if I, I thought, could, yeah. If I uh, researched what the Dogen call the symbol, I would be able to tell you more because anciently, if you can get to the original word for a thing, it flatly explains to you what the person meant. This is, this is partly why I prefer ancient Egyptian words. Uh, the Egyptian words, each glyph represents a concept, and if you assign the right concept to the glyph, uh, say there are a string of glyphs in a word, you'll produce a sentence that explains to you in subtle detail what the meaning of the word was. Mm-hmm. The easiest example I probably cited before on a previous uh, interview is an Egyptian word for weak, which is formulated the same way as an ancient Chinese word for weak, right. with two glyphs. One glyph that represents the concept of a day, and a glyph that represents the number 10, and both cultures observed a 10-day week. The words are that specific that if you know what the symbol represents, symbols represent, you know what the word meant, what they intended with the word. Right. Now, the, take it a step further because they're not dealing with written language. It's oral language. The Dogen preserve a previous version of the same system where concepts were represented by what we would consider to be two-letter symbols or three-letter symbols. Mm-hmm. Like uh, we're familiar from ancient Egypt with the concept of raw. raw representing the sun right um it's that sort that sort of syllable i very often i'll refer to the dogan dictionary to the dogan as a culture have an imperative to preserve original forms so i can look at their word go to a syllable and get a good sense of what that syllable originally was meant to represent and then go to the egyptian hieroglyphic language and other places and try to confirm that and get a sense of now how did how did the the written form uh, descend from that original phonetic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But we're paying attention. I mean, even with, even with the Maori culture, their language is formulated according to the same phonetics. Right. So before I even started with the Maori, I could tell you what a typical Maori word meant based on how it was pronounced. Absolutely. So do you think the okay, so just so people know, on the on the left is the picture of the uh, from Central Australia uh, the depictions of a great medicine man known as the Wizard of the uh, Wargaia. He, and he instructed tribes in mysteries. Um, and then on the picture on the right, you have the uh, pillar, the T-pillar from Gobekli Tepe, pillar 28 from Enclosure C. Right. Um, Showing the same, same symbol. symbol. However, I did read, because uh, I like to look at both sides of things, and I read an archaeologist's article about it and how there is two things if you look at on the uh the right picture on each side of the middle um the 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 line that runs through the middle 
on each side of that, there are two other structures that are either kind of faded or worn away um, uh. that would make it a little bit different than the one on the... But it's still pretty similar, even if there was these two other things. Um, and the the archaeologist was just saying that it was it's just a coincidence that, you know, these indigenous tribes or people had the same idea as the uh, people from Gobekli Tepe and the one, the Australian uh, medicine man, was, you know, that picture was taken in the early 1900s, I think. Um, and But the distance is crazy. I mean, the distance from, if you flew directly from Gobekli Tepe to central Australia, it's like uh, 7,500 miles or something ridiculous. So... Right, right. Um, well, well, now that's, the, uh, that's always the easiest thing to say is, "Oh, it's a coincidence." Well, actually, the uh, the root philosophy of this um, this system is called Samkhya, and even Samkhya admits that uh, you know everyday coincidences do happen. In this case, to have this particular symbol associated with a man whose job it is to teach cosmology compared to a, a symbol on a, at a sanctuary that we feel is rooted in cosmology, this is more than coincidence. Hmm. Um, I have a, a copy of those two symbols uh, up, on, up on my screen. Okay. Um, okay. Now, I've already said, I've, I've already given illustrations of how pretty much every other enigmatic symbol that we can't explain on the Gobekli Tepe pillars connects to the idea of universes, the, the interface between universes. How energy interfaces between universes. Right. So the easy is that this one does too. Um, as I said, what I'll try to do for you is um, wh when we're finished with the interview today, I'll try to do some research and find out what the Dogen uh, uh, name for that symbol might be, or what the Aboriginal name for that symbol might be, okay. and then from there I should be able to sort out what it's about. Okay. Um, but but yes, now very often in my field of study. Real information begins with someone noticing a resemblance. That doesn't mean that they all do. That, that All it means is that if we notice a resemblance and it strikes us as something that might have meaning, a job of a person like me is to then go try to find a way to anchor that, to try to give, to demonstrate that a, what an ancient culture thought about the symbol of the ritual or the word and then verify that other cultures saw it the same way. And once you can do that, then you're in a position to argue that the symbol means a thing. Right. If you can't do that, then it's a wisp in the wind. It's like looking at a cloud and a child looking at a cloud and seeing a horse. Right. I think somewhere too, I read maybe that the, um, the symbol, and I don't know if this is true, but the symbol means that it's two people having a conversation like face to face or sitting down and communing mm -hmm. with one another. However, when I look at it, Along with the H symbol, which you already mentioned, the non-material and the material, this could easily symbolize that as well to me if I'm just looking at this um, from that standpoint, how if there's a material and a non-material realm and there's some sort of division between the two is where maybe the H, there's a connection or a bridge between the two. Um, right. That's just my observation on that. And there is, if, if you believe in a metaphysical realm or, you know, Plato's theory of forms or something like that, um, that would make sense because we can't really tap into that other than maybe crazy mind altering experiences, whether it be psychedelics, near death experiences, stuff like that. Now, in terms of the connection to Australia, um, 
the group, from my perspective, that was responsible for carrying the, the these icons and symbols forward from the era of 10,000 BC down into India was called the Shakti cult. It's a, a feminine tradition um, focused on fertility um, and yoga and uh, concepts like that. The authorities on the Shakti cult tradition, which is a, still a living tradition in India, mm -hmm. is that the ancient influence is extended as far south and east as Australia. So it's not at all, I mean, they trace those in terms of, in relation to DNA, in relation to um, elements of a civilized society, ag agriculture and domesticated animals and things like that. They trace it in terms of language that authorities on the Shakti cult can trace the influences as far as Australia directly from Quebec to Depe. So, yeah, so you're working your way up from there down. What what about a suggestion that maybe, look, Gobekli Tepe, like I said, roughly 12,000 years old, more exactly 11,600 years old. That's roughly, you know, what was what was going on with the Younger Dryas stuff and the possible impact in, in that theory. Um, that Sunda land before all that would have been... Um, this land bridge that connected Australia to Southern Indonesia. Um, and this idea that Abra or they know genetically that, you know, through Australopithecus and, um, you know, all the recent s studies and finds that Australians are or, or Aboriginals are a lot older genetically than we once thought. So do you think it's possible that maybe even these people worked their way up through that land bridge or over that land bridge um, up into Gobekli Tepe that way, or do you think it was more likely that they worked their well, way down? Well, okay. I often say that, um, okay, one of the things that the Dogans say their teachers were trying to foster in us was something called discriminating knowledge. Hmm. Now, discriminating knowledge is the ability to take a set of facts now facts are important they 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 teach you certain things but a list of facts is not nearly as powerful typically as the inferences that we often can draw from those facts now in this case on one hand the facts we're talking about is someone at 10,000 BC was talking about what looks like scientific concepts of of material creation and talking correctly about them and drawing them correctly. Someone, according to the Dogen, this is not theory, this is flat statement of fact. Here's how things work with processes of creation. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's true, that whoever that was certainly had no difficulty whatsoever in traveling wherever they wanted to on the planet. Right. And so we have to have to keep mindsets um sort of in frame with each other that we can't judge somebody who's talking about astrophysics in terms of what was what we think was possible for uh, Stone Age or Neolithic Age people. That it's not a question of whether they could have crossed on a land bridge someplace. Someone who's talking about um, astrophysics can go wherever they want to. Sure, absolutely. And we've talked about that too with the, like, the Thor Heyerdahl stuff and being able to build a raft from the stuff around you and float across the Pacific ocean to the islands like Easter Island and Micronesian islands and stuff like that. So I have yeah, no, some might make it and some, some might not. I, but... I have right. <laughs> I, I have no doubt that ancient people were getting around a lot more easily than we think 
or thought that they were. But at the same time, you know, there is, if you're seeing similar symbology, um, there's obviously some sort of connection. I, I know a lot of people would point to this idea of like in Atlantis that, um, there was this global civilization or central system or pos- yeah. possibly even just, yeah. In a hub, um, where, um, in the Mediterranean or between the, the pillars of, uh, Hercules, that kind of stuff. So, uh, what do you think about that? Like an ancient, like, uh, Atlanta or bless you, or the, the, uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, you know, in Atlantis, that kind of a thing. Do you think that there was an Atlantis or do you think that that's all, um, uh, an analogy or an allegory created by Solon or, uh, the Egyptian priests that were telling it to him or, I think that everything that was reported to us as having been said by Plato about Atlantis is substantially the truth. Mm. Mm. Um, Now, in terms of trying to trace some of that, some of the evidence, a lot of the evidence is ambiguous because, uh, like we talk about uh, the concept of an ancient civilization called Mu, part of the problem is that in the languages of some of these cultures, the word Mu meant ancestor. So if they're talking about an ancestral tradition that they're referring to as Mu, there's no way to distinguish are they talking simply talking about everyday ancestors in an everyday context, or are they talking about an ancient civilization called Mu? Right. Um, right. This is part of the quality of evidence that I say for me falls on the pile of, of open questions. Um, things that I'm not in a position right this moment to make a flat statement about being whether they're true or they're not true, but I sort of hold in abeyance, understanding that later on down the line, I may have a perspective that pulls that into a context for me, and now I can flatly say, I know this must be the case. Now, there's also a category, even with one things that I know must be the case, that I'm not in a position to explain short of book length explanation to someone who hasn't been through the same process of exploration I've been through, why I'm certain that a certain thing is true. (laughs) So, Well, yeah, I mean, you've done the research, you're you're trusting your gut. Um, I don't see any reason why not. And you're always going to have people challenge you or challenge ideas and that's how we move forward, right? I mean, it's either wrong or it's right or it's Every, I, I've come to the conclusion recently that everything's wrong. And you're talking about like th- <laughs> th- Thomas Kuhn, you know, philosophy of science, that there's, it's going to be replaced. Your ideas are either outdated yes. or wrong. And a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, whatever the case may be, you are yep. going, you are going to be wrong. It's just, <laughs> that's right. And even academics, our idea of gravity today is not going to be the same as it is a hundred years from now, just like it wasn't when Newton came, came up with the idea. Um, right. so, uh, again, I just think that you're doing your best and, uh, the, when you do your best and you put in the time, you put in the, the effort, you do the research, uh, you should be taken seriously. And I, you know, obviously you have well, a nice following and people that appreciate your work. So, um, you definitely have a respect there and as we respect you and then why we have you on our show as well. Well, thanks. I try as a goal to bring things down to a why, to bring questions down to a why. And before I will flatly say that I know a thing, I have done that. Now, sometimes that why becomes, the, the rationale that supports that why becomes a very complicated set of things. 
Um, I uh, self-published a book a few a couple of years ago, 2018, called um, "Seeking the Primordial." Mm-hmm. Um, basically, trying to to express or lay the foundation for a perspective uh, on quantum processes that I understand and I can bring down to a why, but you can't do it in the context of an interview. You can It takes over an entire book's length to try to bring it down to that context. And so more and more often that's what I'm trying to do with these, these issues that are very complicated is take the time to actually write out the book and spell it out step by step. This is This is how I know this. And for someone who has the patience to wade through it, they, they get to it. Absolutely. Um, I think patience is key. Um, and again, thank you for being patient with us today <laughs> with our 106 attempts to get this thing launched. And, uh, yeah, see, it's presenting us with problems and we're taking your advice and uh, going from there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, the idea that, that, that instruction that happened to go back to the Tempeg could have um, spread worldwide is not a problem, an obstacle for me. It's not a problem because the nature of the information is such that whoever was giving it wouldn't have had a problem globally. Sure. That's the easy way to put it. Now I want to pull up, um, I'm going to pull up an image here of, uh, some relief carvings. All right. So here you've got, um, the Fox on the left and then you have the, um, the relief carving on the right when again relief carving is they cut away um leaving a 3d type of a structure um and you see that with the 3d carvings that the high relief is usually the predator and then the one the lower relief or the one that's um not sticking out as far as usually the the being hunted maybe is kind of how i interpret that or how i've read into that um so you've got the uh the um that my my i'm going to bring up a picture though of the dogon have these um i think they're made out of wood if i'm not mistaken they're carvings but they're relief carvings off of wood of these pillars that hold up some sort of sticks or branches i don't know if it has some sort of uh sacred significance um and i know you can't really see it but if you look there at the top there is some similarity between these are more intricate, obviously it's modern day, but right. if you were to go more primitive, more ancient and compared Gobekli Tepe to some of the relief imagery or carvings of the Dogon, there is some similarities at least in the way that it looks. Uh, I'm, I'm going to send, send you a, um, a photo. Okay. You can't find it online because it doesn't exist online anymore. Okay. Uh, first, first I have to, let's see, uh, through, through, Facebook message. I'll send it to you here. Okay. Um, Why well, doesn't it exist? Well, illustrate. Anymore? That's a good question. I'm glad that I downloaded it when I did because I can't find it anywhere. Hmm. Um, I get to it. We're trying to hold but the truth it will, from us. It will intuitively convey to you the connection between the Dogen and go back to the hmm. Without question. Yeah, because you sent me before. I, I don't know if it was the last time we did this. By the way, anybody listening to this, we've had Laird on before. I think it was episode 47. Really good interview, really good talk. Um, and uh, definitely check that out. 
Um, Let's see if this works. But yeah, so you can look through similarities too. Uh, you're not just uh, the symbolism, but also technique. You know, like how what was their architecture like? What was their um, what was their art like? That those kinds of things. What, did they have cave art? Did they have um, you know, as where Gobekli Tepe would be stone art or um, something along those lines. When you look at the, these comparisons, though, I know you just look at a lot of symbolism, but do you also compare like techniques and stuff like that too? Or, um, um, I do in terms of style. style in terms of, let's see if, like, I thought I had this here. One second. You're fine. You're fine. Let's let's uh, see if we've. If I've got it in the Facebook message for you, it's hard to tell. Okay. Okay. Okay, come on. Photo. Well, we'd just like to remind everybody, if you're enjoying this episode, hit that like button and smash subscribe. More good knowledge coming coming soon. We'll have you back on, too, maybe... uh, after your book releases in July or August, somewhere around there, after I get a chance to read it. Yeah, that'd be nice. Okay, here's the, what I've sent you is a comparative image between a dog and altar stone. Okay. And let's go back to bed. And then I'll also send you a copy of the full dog and altar stone for you to see. Okay. Let me get here. Let me pull it up. Working on the fly, folks. <laughs> yeah. We're trust we're trusting our show in the hands of technology again. I, I really like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. And you I, know how that goes. I don't. <laughs> yeah. I, it's good to show these pictures okay. though. It really can nail your your point home when you can visualize it and Yeah. The se- second image is the is the the one that really makes the point. But the comparative images are also interesting. Okay, let me do it here. Hold on a second. All right, I'm going to add second one, and then I'm going to pull it up. All right, let me see here. See if I can drag these real quick. Um, so what, what do you think is... A, was the Dogon first? Were they just part of this cultural center going back and forth? Uh, what was? Uh, what do you think was going on with the Dogon and their connection to it? Okay, the Egyptians and the Buddhists explained that to us. They each talk about a first time. The, the Buddhists talk about the first time knowledge was passed by a Buddha to humanity at a place called Vulture Peak. Yeah. The Egyptians talk about a first time. Now... You don't, if there had only been one round of instruction, you wouldn't call it the first time. You would call it the time. Right. So use of the word first time implies it was more than one round of instruction. Mm. From my perspective, what happened was that thousands of years after, okay, the, the second round of instruction for me happened around 4,000, around actually 3,200 BC on Orkney Island in north of, north of Scotland. Um, and it looks to me as if the instruction in the second round was conducted by Dogen-like priests. It looks to me as if the Dogen were the ones who did the best job of 
pre preserving intact the first round of instruction. And so they were enlisted to be the teachers of the second round of instruction at 3200 BC. Hmm. That's the simple outlook. Um, so at 10,000 BC, I don't see the Dogen as being anybody special. They were just another group of students brought in, eight students brought in to, to learn this stuff and then shipped back to wherever they came from to teach everybody else. Um, okay, so I've then got... by 3,000 by BC, they were, oh, you got the pictures, good. Yeah, I got the picture up. Um, so there you see, that's the fox, right? And then the, the pig down below. Yep. But this... The fact that the Dogen treat this as an altar of high significance that I had never seen a picture of other than this one and I can't find a picture of now. This is closely held, uh, a closely held image and a closely held altar stone. Mm -hmm. And stylistically, it's almost indistinguishable from what we see at Gobekli Tepe. Yeah, let me pull up the other one again just so people can. Oh, not that one. There you go. See the similarities between the two. That's a fox, right? Because I know it's a fox. I right. go back to Tepe. Right, and there's a reason that the the anthropological study of the Dogen religion is called the pale fox. Mm. The fox has significance. Let me try and pull up the other picture now too. Let's see if I can get that one up. That's awesome. Um, the other one's taking a second here. Now. Do you think that um, why do you when academics approach the stuff? Oh, it's a coincidence, or oh, you know, that's just the primitive way that people did it. Um, you know, the same goes for pyramids. Well, the explanation why there's so many pyramids built around similar times it's a coincidence. It's just a basic geometric shape that was part of our evolution. That's kind of the way that it's approached by academics. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that? Um, and I'm sure there are people making connections too, but why do you think that it's um, it's an easy default for them to go to that? Um, it, it's hard to speculate about their their motivations. Um, I know that a lot of the material leads to places that you that is um, professional suicide for an academic, a traditional academic to go to. Mm -hmm. Right. So. If you don't plan to go to Chicago, you don't. You shouldn't take the first step down the road towards Chicago. Right. And I think that's where at. they understand that. I can talk about this, but if I do, it's where the place where it's going to lead me to is not going to be compatible with a career. Gotcha. So it takes somebody special like Robert Schock who's willing to step, you know, push the boundaries of his field of study in order to address some of these things. All right, I'm going to pull up. Again, that's like what we were talking about with art or music. It takes these special people to kind of come out and just go for it, and then they, they they're the ones that make the lasting impression. You know, if we didn't have those Beatles come out with Sgt. Pepper's, what would what would rock and roll music be today? So you need right. those outside of the box thinkers, that's for sure. What's funny is the Beatles thought they were imitating the Beach Boys, and the Beach Boys thought they were imitating the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> So here I have the second picture up again where you can kind of see the similarity in the relief carvings and uh, the imagery. Um, this one, it looks like you've got an elephant and some other That's stuff. That's a beautiful piece of work there. Um, when you look at um, these images, do you think, though, that, again, 
these people were in contact with these other people for sure? Or are you open to the idea of also um, not necessarily even being wrong, but just that there it could be a coincidence? Like, how do you approach that? I know you said your process of you don't look for things that aren't there. You're more grounded in the sense that when you look for um, connections or symbology, mm-hmm. it has to be there for you to acknowledge it kind of a thing. Um, but how do you approach it as, as if, let's say you might be wrong or you could be wrong. Is there, has there been any of that since you've been writing your books or? Well, um, surprisingly, as I look back on books that I wrote very early in my process, I'm astounded that I'm not more obviously wrong about certain things than, than I was. But with any of these questions, there's all, you are always holding open at the end, sort of at the end of your arm, the possibility that you could be wrong about a thing. Um, there were a number of occasions where John Anthony West took uh, a very different view of the meaning of a thing than I had come to through what I was researching. But I knew that he was a very careful researcher and that he didn't adopt a position without a good reason. So I quickly learned that in those situations, I needed to do more digging and do more do do more work. And when I did that work, what I would it would eventually turn out that there was an umbrella perspective over both points of view. That actually, as I said, where a symbol doesn't carry a single meaning, it can carry a cluster of meanings. For example, um, John's view was that. Um, those handbag symbols that go back to Tepe represented the concept of a house. Mm. My view was it represented the concept of a sanctuary. As it turns out, those two concepts relate to all the same words. Those are multiple meanings of the same terms. So you could reasonably compl- conclude both either thing or both things. Right. Um, right. So that's, that's the sort of... Um, ballpark of wrong I hope to, to be in <laughs> um, the because of the nature of the sources that I have with the number of different kinds of cross checks I have on the meanings that I'm looking up it would be very very for many of the interpretations to turn out to be wrong because it would contradict flatly contradict what so many different ancient cultures were flatly saying about the thing Right. But it's it's a little having the the um, the fifth grade teacher's copy of the textbook with the answers to all the questions in in the back. Yeah. That you're asking yourself, is it possible that the that the answer in the back of the book isn't right? Well, yes, it is possible that it's not right. But to begin with, I'm sort of cheating because I'm I'm taking the answer from the back of the book. Right. And it, so it's how wrong can I be? It's how much wiggle room do I have to be wrong? It's a difficult thing too. I try and balance it out because on one end you want to make sure that when I research something or I read a book or I'm making connections or different things, I always think to myself, is this my mind, um, you know, uh, implementing pareidolia on this subject or is this actually something there? And I know, like I mentioned, you do that with your research, but at some, at some points though, I do second guess myself, question myself, is this really this? And how much do we actually know? Like I mentioned before, what's, right today is going to be wrong tomorrow for the most part so if that's the case 
it's almost like we're just participating in this charade to move the ball down the field a little bit at the same time it has seemed to work out into our favor so um, <laughs> it's this kind well, of catch 22 of are we doing the right thing should we be doing something different and it has helped this this far well there are, there are two rules that i've set for myself in my work that protect against that wishful interpretation effect the first is the one I mentioned, which is an interpretation has to begin with a flat statement on the part of one of the cultures. Hmm. That you have to have a way of representing that some ancient cultures saw it this way, and you have to be able to confirm that there is at least one other ancient culture that saw it the same way. And then you, then you have a starting point. But by the time you get to the end of the process, you need to be, be able to boil it down to a sentence. You need to be able to boil it down. You need to be able to complete the sentence. We know this must be true because, and then fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. Now, it's that blank that I said for, for certain concepts ends up being an entire book rather than just a word or a sentence or a, a photo like I sent you. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can't, once you can bring it down to that and you can say, we know this must be true because, and fill in the blank, you're on solid ground with the interpretation you can absolutely defend it against any anyone who tries to to come against it mm -hmm. the trick is that when they do come against it you also have to seriously consider what the person's saying as a counter perspective like J john anthony west saying no that represents a house not a sanctuary right that if, if you're not open to what they're also saying and to apply the same process to what their critique is then you might only be seeing part of the picture anyway. Absolutely. And I, I, I do, I like this kind of stuff because I think that some people just get, if you research these topics and you're into science and you're into ancient civilizations, you're into all this stuff, there's only so much you can learn and so, so many places it can go before it's like, okay, this is kind of boring. Like, where is this getting us? But when you look at, the work that you've done and Graham Hancock and others, even while let's say you're admittedly wrong or we're wrong about something or Graham's come out and admitted he was wrong on a certain few things as well. Um, a, a lot of the stuff has rung true or come to fruition, like the Clovis first kind of, you know, being wrong and that kind of stuff. And um, your connections between ancient civilizations showing that there was probably contact or something going on that we are, um, I'm not aware of but when you do those kinds of when you do that kind of research it pushes it in a direction where it things move forward quicker I think so people that study like metaphysics or metaphysical theories I think we need that kind of thinking like visionary type thinking where you might be putting the cart before the horse but I think that since most science is this like snail pace chipping away chipping away chipping away it's nice to have that Let's jump ahead and speculate or let's do this and then fill in the gaps as we go if we can. If not, we're wrong and we'll move on kind of a thing. No, but you also need the, the neophyte to, a con, you know, to a, an issue who doesn't know not to ask the simplistic question that nobody else thought to ask. I mean, quite often that ends up revealing something that, that you know, one of the the – misdirections of this kind of study is that you get into a certain mindset and so you take for granted your assumptions and you're not continually going back and reassessing every assumption at every moment. Right. 
but to have someone step into a field who knows nothing about it and to ask that that dumb question or what they consider to be the dumb un, uninformed question about a thing um it questions assumptions and things often turn up because of that sure <laughs> no i mean i guess that makes sense um a new set of eyes taking a look at something. Definitely. I, I know when something, I, well, okay. So when I was new to all these subjects a few years ago, I've always been a curious person. I've always been interested in this kind of stuff, but really a few years ago I started reading books, doing research, um, reading your books, reading Graham's books, reading all the stuff I can find and also reading the academic stuff and the scientific papers and the anthropological papers and all that kind of stuff too, just to get the full gambit of what's going on. Um, and since I've done that, I realize we don't know as much as we think we know. So there's already that illusion. Um, and then, right. then you had the new set of eyes. So when it was new to me, I was making all sorts of connections. I'm like, uh, you know, fingerprints of the gods. They're talking about uh, Quetzalcoatl and Kubalcan and um, all these Kontiki uh, uh, and all these gods that kind of have similar traits. And you start to think, oh, that sounds like this or this sounds like that. Um, and you start to right. make different connections. So I guess it's exciting when when you're new to it too, because there is this element of it being new. There's like a romance period, um, or a, a honeymoon period, uh, you know, that has to do with it. But once you get out of that, I think it does become kind of hard to keep the passion um, to keep pursuing these ideas and the stuff. Uh, is that something that you have experienced? You know, people get writer's block, or they just get fed up on something is that has that ever happened to you or is this something that no no not, not at all okay. that um that the issues that i am actively interested in researching come some so much more quickly than i have time to explore them that that never ever happens um now the the um the rule that I, the second rule that I t talked about, that I applied to myself, that being able to bring it down to, we we know this must be true because, is a rule that I often apply to other researchers because, quite often you read a book by an academic person or a non-academic person where a flat statement is made that we know absolutely this is true. Mm -hmm. Even it comes down to even scientific studies uh, talking about um, things they know for certain are true about Mars or for certain true about the history of Mars. Right. Um, that I find that when you push that envelope, when you ask the question, how is it, and you pursue, how is it that they know this for certain, and you trace it down through the, the levels of thinking, you realize at bottom it rests on an assumption that's not founded. It's rest, it rests on a presumption that somebody made that a certain thing has to be true, and that all these things that are presented as done deal issues aren't really done deal issues. No one has really actually explored the thing to, to its bottom. And so there are lots of opportunities out there for anybody who wants to research a subject that's interesting to them, even if it seems like there are authorities who have already covered this information, uh, because there's lots and lots of wiggle room in the historical stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Um, do you think that... Let's let's actually talk about your material and non-material th or theories and, and hypothesis and, and different things. Um, so it's kind of something like a common theme within your books. When you look at that, 
though in itself do you believe that there's something metaphysical going on or do you, are you just following the breadcrumbs and this is just what the research shows or is this part of your belief too well if someone you know an alarm went off a timer went off and i was told time's up no no more time for research you have to declare now what you think is going was going on what i would say the reality is is that is remarkably similar to what Samke uh, portrays it as being, mm -hmm. that the root dynamic of the universe is an oscillation of energy call that's reflected in a dipole. It's the, the idea of energy come progress persistently coming together and moving apart, coming together, moving apart. It's an oscillation. And that root dynamic, we see all the way up the scale, it repeats, all the way up the scale from the quantum level to beyond the level of universes. It pertains to how time works. Mm -hmm. And that universes form in pairs, and that the dynamic between those universes, the energetic dynamic between the universes, is that same oscillation. And the net effect of the oscillation is two things. It causes one universe to progressively become less massive while the other one becomes more massive. And as a consequence of the change in mass, you're shifting how quickly time is experienced in those universes. So the one that's becoming less massive, time runs ultra quickly compared to the one that's more massive. Now, the upshot of all that is that there's a cycle of energy going on here because the, os the way the oscillation works is the two centers of energy move apart and they move back together again. So they take turns becoming the one that's less massive or the one that's more massive. It's a cycle like a yuga cycle, mm -hmm. a descending and an ascending cycle. The essential difference between the universes rests with how they experience time. And when you hit the if you compare that cycle to the concept of a year, the familiar concept of a year, the center point of that dynamic of energy where the energy and mass between the two universes and therefore the time frames of the two universes equalize is at the equinox of the year. That's why the equinox is important. That's why the word Kepper, which refers to the concept of non-existence coming into existence, but also is the term applied to an equinox, mm -hmm. It's what it is. That's why Judaism celebrates Yom Kippur. This is the point of which an airlock effect is happening. Essentially, the time frames function as air pressure or water pressure does. Okay. And that as long as you have a great difference in, as long as you have a great difference in pressure between the universes, it's not really possible to move between them. Mm -hmm. Not safely. You get to the equinox of the cycle, the, like the center point of the the hourglass, where you have as much sand in the bottom as in the top, you equalize the pressures. Now it's it's scientifically conceivable that something on the non-material side could move into the material side, and that's what the Dogen said their teachers did. So, again, your the research that you've done and, and it indicates that there's this material, non-material, and that when we get these golden ages or golden eras, or you know, upticks in the yuga cycles, it's because these realms are closer or the bridge is there or something along those lines. Right. Depending on how that those energies relate to each other, when the energies are more equal, our ability to perceive the twin universe is greater. Okay. This is partly 
we this is partly why I think we're facing impending disclosure about a lot of things that have been kept secret. It's because <laughs> in terms of the Yuga cycle, uh, conceptions of the Yuga cycle as they're represented anciently in the materialized study, we have just passed the bottom of that cycle and are now starting to ascend upward. Mm. But what that means is, practically what it means is, that suddenly we're going. humanity is going to be able to perceive a whole set of things that they haven't previously been able to perceive, or not recently. Yeah. And so all of these things... What do you think that... What do you think is going to go, what, based on what you know or what you've researched or whatever, what do you think that would be? Do you think it's some sort of um, non-physical thing, some weird thing that's just going to happen? Or do you think it's slowly us talking about this stuff, people looking into like psychedelic therapies and expanding your mind and your consciousness, people like R Rupert Sheldrick and uh, Dean Radin trying to... Um, suggest that possibly we might have some psychic abilities and not in like the super woo-woo sense, but in a, in a grounded uh, scientific sense based on research and studies that they've done. Um, the chain, the cycle of energy is going to continue without regard to what we do. Hmm. Question is whether our mindset is such that it's going to allow us to reconcile differences that in reality that become apparent that, that we don't recognize now. Hmm. In other words, it's a question of being prepared for the thing you're going to see. It's, uh, I mean, uh, you, I don't mean to, I don't mean that in any kind of a negative way, but you can compare it to, you know, is an EMT specialist prepared for what they're going to encounter at a, at a horrible accident. Right. This is this is something that has the potential to change a person's psyche. This is has, these are things that have the potential to create PTSD. So it could be so, something like even, and not to get crazy, but like we've had all these recent UFO sightings by like the Navy and recorded on video. Right. Um, some people suggest it's our secret military black uh, money programs or whatever. Um, other people swear that it's not. Um, so would it be something like? let's say, more proof of that or one of those things trying to make contact or something along those lines? I, I think everything that we have considered to be paranormal is going to prove itself to be a rational consequence hmm. of this cycle of energy. So that normal. Down to, that down to fairies. Hmm. Okay. Wow. And everything we consider to be paranormal, we're going to find that there's a scientific basis for that we previously have not been able to perceive. And that that's going to happen fairly quickly from this point on, which is why people on our side who have been keeping things hidden are realizing that that's no longer, that's a lost game already. That's a losing game. You can't win. You, you can't sustain that. Right. Because people are going to be, be able to understand that this what we thought was paranormal is actually real. Yeah, it's interesting. We've interviewed a number of people because obviously on this show we do a lot of different topics, anywhere from ancient civilizations, UFOs, some paranormal stuff, uh, science. I mean, we cover the whole range. But we the people that we've had on, it seems like some each person that we've had on believes in something. Even the scientists believe in some other thing, whether 
somebody that believes that there's life somewhere out there in the universe or somebody believes that there's a Bigfoot or somebody believes that there's ghosts or aliens or whatever these things are. Most people believe in at least one of those things. Um, and it's weird because those same people, let's say that we've had somebody believe in hardcore ghosts, those same people won't believe in aliens. So it's kind of this weird thing <laughs> yeah. where maybe yeah. they are all connected or they are all this, you know, uh, Jacques Fillet's passport to Magnolia where the same thing is just putting on different masks to uh, to interact with us. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating for sure. And I, I think that your research definitely highlights some of these weirder aspects of ancient civilizations and our earliest forms of civilization. I did want to ask you one question though, uh, before we start getting towards the end here, what do you think about how we have become civilized in terms of academics would suggest that we have, um, domesticated ourselves at some point and how, let's say you look at like a feral pig compared to a, or, uh, uh, yeah, uh, no, just a feral pig compared to like a normal uh, farm pig. They they are the same thing genetically, but they look very different. Um, and in terms of that, like, so like, is that what happened to us? Do you think, or do you think that something domesticated us, just like we've learned to domesticate anim animals and um, that kind of and used agriculture, all that kind of stuff? Well, first of all, at 3200 BC, we have almost uniformly peaceful cultures everywhere. You have the earliest villages with no sign of any uh, fortification whatsoever to defend themselves from anybody, no archaeological evidence of weaponry, little archaeological evidence of, of people having died from warfare, that the peaceful, the truly peaceful domesticated eras of humanity were at the center point hmm. of the half the 12,000 year cycle. And that since that time, we have, from my point of view, done the opposite of domesticate ourselves. We have, have been progressing towards the lowest common denominator of human uh, ethics and, and behaviors compared to what I see at 3200 BC. Hmm. That's the first, the first outlook. Um, uh, back to what you were saying about the connection to the paranormal, I wanted to bring up one one point, and that is I've spent the past week reading carefully through Whitley Strieber's new book. It's called A New World. Mm -hmm. Now, Whitley Strieber, you may recall, he and his wife, his late wife, Anne, were at the cutting edge of the UFO experiencer phenomenon. They're the ones who, because they were carefully introspective and courageously um outreaching were able to move questions of ufo contact off of the tabloid pages and into serious discussion and into serious books so whitley's new book okay I, i've known over the past decade and whitley started to be aware also that where his material was taking him was very much the same place my material has taken me there is a huge overlap. And so it took me a week to get through a couple of hundred pages of his book because he could hardly write a sentence in the book without it sending me off on a, on a scattered off on a, to, to other sources that I pursue to confirm or to respond to 
the thing he was saying. Sure. He's almost 100% in the ballpark of the perspective I'm in about what's going on energetically and what's going on in terms of preparing humanity for a whole set of new perceptions that we need to be on board with. And that's what his book is about. Yeah, I mean, um, I haven't read it yet. Oh. I, I've been meaning to read it, but it, it's. It, I've heard we had a couple other guests. Uh, I think uh, Doctor Michael Masters brought it up as well. Um, but yeah, I got to check it out. And obviously, Communion, um, it's a super important book, and his all of his research and all of his uh, stuff. And, and that's the interesting thing about that too. I look at his work and I look at John Mack's work and there definitely right. was some super weird stuff going on back then. Oh, um, yeah. Now what's interesting, I was mentioning that cosmological words carry a cluster of meanings. Well, those clusters of meanings hold true for UFO experiences. They also hold true for dreams that when a UFO witness describes an event happening and a strong feeling they have at the time they see the event or some strange transformation in event, time and time and time again, these play out in terms of the multiple meanings of a single Egyptian word, hmm. ancient Egyptian word. <laughs> this is, this is illustrative for me of a dynamic of concepts that are, begin on a non-material side and then sort of move with, from a unity to multiplicity type dynamic across the boundary between universes. Anything that expresses itself is reflective of that. The uh, classic exa example is white light producing seven colors of a rainbow or a musical tone producing seven musical notes. This is a thing. Sure. And these languages and these, these UFO experiences all express themselves in terms of the same translational effect. Um. So that's one of the, the important things that connects what Whitley has been experiencing to what I've been researching is the consequences of that dynamic and being able to demonstrate the effects of that dynamic. And so when uh, a UFO witnesser steps out on her porch and sees three gray aliens who don't know she's there, and then she, they notice her and they turn to leave, but instead she sees three deer leave, mm -hmm. the Egyptian word that means to depart in haste is also the Egyptian word for deer. Right. It's as if the action they are taking is evoking uh, a correlating uh, image in the head of the person, but with a translational effect. Mm -hmm. um, the Egyptian word for owl, which is one of the images these experiences traditionally seen, see, is a homonym for a word that means to comfort. Mm-hmm. Time and time again, uh, when they talk about a UFO rises up and changes to a certain color or moves away and changes to a different color or approaches them and changes to a third color, these are homonyms of Egyptian words. The, the action and the visual effect or the action and the emotional effect. And so same thing happens with dreams. If someone can describe to me a vivid dream they have and tell me all of the the vivid images they remember and the strong feelings they had and any words that came to them during the dream go to the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionary and their clusters are meanings and the clusters will tell you what the dream's about. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's interesting too. And to the point where most people are like, Oh, cause we were talking about ancient civilizations. Now we're talking about, um, 
UFOs and possibly aliens. I don't, I don't believe aliens built anything on the planet. I, I know you don't. Um, and most people that are even on like ancient aliens don't believe that any of these megalithic structures or sites were actually built by beings coming down well, from. Let, let me, let me interrupt you there. Oh, okay. There is a, there is. Okay. If the difference between non-materiality and materiality, that's what is I was getting at. Yeah. Time frame, okay. And we've been experiencing a progressively slowing time frame. Then, if we imagine that some of the early temples in Egypt were influenced by construct, uh, their construction was influenced by a non-material influence or source. Mm-hmm. Then, in the early eras of ancient Egypt, when their time frame, when the non-material sources time frame should have been much more quick compared to ours than it is now, we see. 700 ton blocks of stones being used and as you progress through Egyptian culture the size of those stones drops smaller and smaller and smaller it could be that we have an effect that's akin to I'm trying to think of what the term is in science Um, there's a smallest quantum unit that can be accessed Mm -hmm. it could be that the shortest moment of time that could be accessed non-materially and take effect in the material side with such that they couldn't cut a, a block of stone smaller than 700 tons. Hmm. So there are perspectives like that one, indications that certain structures might actually have been the product of non, non-material influences in early times right. or in prior in, cycles. Influence, I agree. I, I've talked about that, and that's kind of where I was going, is not... I, by what I meant by that was there's not people that can ha- build anti-gravity technology or a time traveling ma- machine or whatever the case may be come here with that advanced technology and then use it's to bet back then it was advanced and to this day yeah we don't know exactly how they did it but it's pretty crude it's not neat it's not perfect it's not um, right where there might be some crazy cuts here and there it's not uniform and it's not universal so my, right. my my point was i don't think these beings are coming from outer space to build these things if anything they're being inspired by some divine or parallel realm like what you're mentioning where maybe they did psychedelics maybe they did meditation maybe they um were more perceptive because they didn't have technology and all these distractions and stuff like that. So, Well, Whitley's perspective, and I'm in agreement with it, is that much of what we're talking about we attribute to non-material influences, but that at the same time there quite likely are traditional sci-fi alien influences intermixed with that. Mm-hmm. that there's more than one group that we're talking about here. Yeah, more than one well, there's extraterrestrials about. and there's ultra-terrestrials, which ultra-terrestrials would be more of, you know, John Keel and um, Jacques Filet, that kind of stuff. Um, and what we're, you know, the the actual extraterrestrials. I'm Look, I'm an open-minded person. I personally don't think that aliens came down and built anything. However, I am open to the idea of them being influenced. I've done we talked about a million times with psychedelics and you see geometric patterns, you see things that aren't normally there in your day-to-day consciousness. You experience entities and different weird things. So I'm, I would, if I had to put my chips on, on the table with this, I would say maybe all that stuff had to do with 
Um, the Egyptians have it in their imagery, but uh, the blue lotus, which is a psychedelic plant that has psychoactive compounds, aporphine, and a few others. They also, Syrian ruse prevalent, acacia is prevalent. Acacia has high levels of DMT in it. So all you would need was to ingest Syrian rue and you're boom, you're off on a Middle Eastern ayahuasca analog. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's the case, but I'm saying stuff like that could explain these connections or these interactions. Um, and again, even just meditation or um, for them, it would be praying and, and trying to learn about the afterlife and that kind of stuff. I made a Facebook post this week um, about uh, the the picture on the thread is of a stone Egyptian vase that was very from very very earliest dynasties of Egypt. Um, this is a kind of artifact that uh, I saw at a museum exhibit with John Anthony West a, a decade ago, mm. and they were the ones that he his interest was focused on because quite often they're made from the most difficult stone to work with in terms of trying to shape it but second of all that we modern scientists have no clue how the stone was worked to hollow it out and shape it in the way that it's shaped that you have an interior of the stone that is wider than the neck of the stone hmm. that's perfect i mean the, the whole object is perfect right and there's no, no perspective from which anybody could have fit a tool inside there to do that. Right. right. So clearly there's technology we don't understand that was at use at 3000 BC. Now, who was behind that technology? No one can say for with certainty yet, but the only credible candidates are someone non-material or someone not from here. Mm-hmm. Unless we allow that there was a hugely technological society in existence at the time that, at the time that we have no knowledge of. Right. And again, all these ideas are persecuted and poo-pooed by academics. I've heard people saying that this, you know, uh, the, the, there's a couple archaeologists that are pretty vocal on Twitter that say these kinds of theories are racist and this and that. And um, so (laughs) I don't understand how that's the case at all because we're just talking about one origin for all of us living on this beautiful planet, um, how that could be considered. I get their point. It's saying that we think that there's no way that these indigenous people could have built this. Therefore, it must have been some other sky daddy or extraterrestrials or whatever the case may be. I don't buy into it i just think that they're threatened by the idea that a lot of these other like ancient aliens and stuff they get so much traction and get so much publicity it cuts into what they're doing and makes almost what they're doing <laughs> look uh monotonous and stupid which i'm sure it is sometimes <laughs> but um, well pe- people will ask me um so what success have you had convincing academics of what you're saying is correct And my answer to them is, look, I work in the context of a community of researchers, alternative researchers, who, without regard to any academic, are making our own progress on things. Right. And there certainly is is at least a core set of researchers who are very careful researchers, like John Anthony West, who, when they stand by a point, you can count on the fact that they've thoroughly examined it, thoroughly, thoroughly considered it, and at least have a credible rationale for why they think the thing. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being a moot point to me whether an academic 
you know, the, the exercise of trying to convince an academic to endorse it is a waste of my time. Sure. Because they have vested interests in not, not doing that. They have their own books. They have their own stuff going on. It's the same. Right. And w- one thing I love about the alternative group is that so far, at least, there hasn't been the same kind of establishment of bounds of turf, Mm-mm. individual grounds of turf that people have that they feel like they have to defend to the death. It's far more synergistic. I mean, just the yeah. the people that, uh, and by the way, I don't know if they've reached out to you, but I hope you go on the uh, Snake Brothers, Brothers of the Serpent podcast. Those guys are uh, right up Great. your right up your alley, and um, they do good stuff that specifically. I would be happy to do that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll make sure we we get you. I, I think I gave them your email, but we'll make sure we make that happen for you, for those guys and you. Um, okay. But yeah, just this community of people. Shout out to History Shift, and ha- shout out to all the people that listen to our show that are into these kind of topics and. Um, the community is just so nice. I mean, we've had people that have had, they have similar podcasts or similar, do similar topics. We've had them on the show. We've done swap casts. We've done all this stuff and it's everybody helping out everybody. You don't really get much infighting. There's a few guys that do a lot more numbers than everybody that are up in their ivory towers that don't really communicate with anybody. But other than that, there's not really like any dissent or infighting or anything like that. It's usually pretty cool. Yeah, it's well, because the, the conversation, are, right? Go ahead. Oh, go yep. ahead. That's fine. No, go, no, go ahead. I want to hear. I was just gonna say it's an open conversation. That's what it's all about: is everybody having their own views and coming together, and then weighing out the positives and the negatives, and coming to some kind of realization. Yep. And the bullseye of the target is coming, arriving at a, a collective understanding of what all this stuff is. Hmm. The bullseye isn't, I mean, uh, you know, 500 years from now, it's not going to matter or shouldn't matter or whit to anybody, whether it was Joe Blow or somebody else who discovered a thing, because anything we're, we're uncovering right now, we're only rediscovering, we're not discovering. Right. Um, all we're trying to do is to trace back something somebody once thoroughly understood. So how do you claim academic credit for having done that? Mm-hmm. You don't. Yeah. I again I, I think that uh if everything's gonna be wrong or changed in the future, I hate to keep coming back to it. But if that's the case, <laughs> why can't we all try our hands? If if you're passionate about something, you know, you're passionate about the Dogon and the comparative cosmology and you've you've got great fans and you've you've put out great books, if that's the case, why not be taken seriously as, you know, what, somebody went to school for an extra few years and just commits themselves just to that and they're the 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 end-all be-all on the subject what if they have their own confirmation bias and um uh cognitive biases and all that kind of stuff it's the same thing we're all just people yeah well in the end my role it really isn't any different than a crop circle Mm. that what but my role is is i understand that when i write a book a few people will see something in it that sparks them to ask questions. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, they're going to take things a step further than, I, than I've taken them. And that's really the end of my role. That I mean, th- that's where it sits. I, I, I see myself as, as the functional equivalent of a crop circle. Sure. Well, that, that's, sure. that's a... If someone says, what, what the heck's going on with this? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, but just to wrap it up here, but I want to bring it back to the point that I, or what the question that I asked you before, before we went off on a little tangent is what do you think was going on with 
the domestication. So academics would say that we've domesticated ourselves. Um, I was really doing a lot of thought experiments and going over it in my mind and reading things and watching videos and trying to figure out what's going on uh, in, in that sense. And I just kept thinking about how if we've, again, domesticated all these animals, dogs, pigs, whatever, they tend to look different after you domesticate them. Same thing with us. We look different than our early ancestors, Denisovans, Neanderthals, um, and uh, I'm sure even early versions of Homo sapiens sapiens. I'm sure there's a lot more hair and a lot, a lot of other things going on. Uh, but through the, through the, the evolution process and stuff, I still, I'm still trying to find out that link. Did we, did we domesticate ourselves? Was there another, um, advanced civilization at the time? Was there, um, you know, a different race of, uh, hominids altogether? What was going on? That's what I try and think about. So what, what's your take on that? Or do you think that possibly this non-material realm with these non-material beings possibly have had a hand in or giving us the ideas of civilization and domestication because of the way the energy cycle works the way i see things the universes swap roles over time Mm. it's a twelve thousand year half cycle and so the universe that was formerly the more material side suddenly becomes the less material side you you remember the stories about Atlantis in its late years having more morally declined and ethically declined and they were accused of having taken horrific military action against the Greeks and other people mm-hmm. um, what's described for Atlantis is a state of moral decline not different than not tangibly different from where many of us see us being at in human society right now oh for sure this is this is a cycle. And so the roles of the two universes are dependent ones. And any help that we have received, which I consider to be considerable help we've received from the non-material side over the last 12,000 years, is counterbalanced by the help we're going to provide over the next 12,000 years to what increasingly becomes the material side compared to us. That this is the fundamental covenant between the two universes mm-hmm. is there are mutual um, interests that compel one side to intervene and help the other. And this is one of those, those areas where it's a book-length explanation, but at root, this all sits on an understanding that the universes need each other and need each other in specific ways and that what the non-material universe has been doing for us is in its own ultimately in its own mutual its own personal interest mm-hmm. as it will be for us when we get to the same point sure do you think at some point these two instead of back and forth these two um realms merge they come close to merging at the at the transitions of the cycle right I mean, but, but i mean do, it, does, is there ever any end or is it just the cyclical no, or, or? no this is this is the ongoing nature of energy in the universe you see the same thing happen with so it's just a water a, molecule it's just a cycle that just keeps re going right this this is the root of, of how, how what creates time it's the root of what creates consciousness 
it's uh, the potential for life mm. is built into the same oscillation, and it's just something that, that perpetually goes on. It's not. It's a, a fundamental dynamic of energy. Cool. Again, Michael, you're gonna have to read the book to get the full answer, <laughs> and we'll, we'll have the link down below. I, I, it up. I've read. Actually, I've read some of the. I've read a few of the books now. I need to. <laughs> it's. Uh, he's got too many now. We can't. We can't get to them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a good problem done, baby it's a good problem you see yeah. you see my wife Risa reads a lot of books and i'm just trying to keep up <laughs> keep her <laughs> in supply <laughs> no she doesn't read my my book except for <laughs> <I ask her. laughs> um so to we're gonna do the extra 10 minutes here but i before we cut off and do that i do want to get to a couple questions that some of your fans and our fans asked um one of them from at uh Nefthes on um, Twitter at, wanted to ask, is the Amduat, the Egyptian Amduat, and uh, the Old Testament similar or the same? Um, that was the one question he asked. And um, the other question was, do you plan on doing a book on uh, ancient America, um, since that seems to be a hot topic these days? Um Okay, if we consider that the focus of my studies is at around 3000 BC, mm -hmm. and um, okay, Old Testament references may reach back into that same era, but didn't express themselves until around, um, as far as we know, until around um, year zero. Mm -hmm. So that is actually a thousand years more removed from the material than we are from the year zero. Right. Okay, so mostly Old Testament and New Testament references, while I see that, that, that someone, especially with the Old Testament, had knowledge of, of the system I'm talking about, mostly those references are too late to be productive for me because it's too not, not feasible to, to anchor the connection between, of, of the connection to that from where, the material is. Mm -hmm. um, so Judaism, from my point of view, uh, came out of the same system. There are lots of references in Judaism that, and in Hebrew that connect to what I connect to. And that, so naturally that connects to Old Testament stuff. But it's really in terms of language and ritual and symbolism that I approach it, not in terms of anything that's actually written in the, the Old Testament. Um, one comparison that I do make is... Um, the Dogen describe having actual physical interaction with non-material teachers. Non-material teachers who are able to express themselves, evoke themselves materially, and take action materially. Well, the interaction with Moses on the mountain with the burning bush falls into that same category where the Israelites were warned, cautioned, strongly cautioned against coming too close to the mountain for, for fear of bad effects that would accrue to them. So there are references in the Old Testament that do support the kind of thing I'm talking about, but it's not a primary source for me. Um, I, I rather look at um, more esoteric uh, writings like the Kabbalist writings and things like that. Mm -hmm. That There's a stronger connection there. Like Mir Kaaba um, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Now, in terms of writing a book on Native Americans, I also have taught, written about um, connections um, – that I see passing across from Asia into North America, 
from the same tradition. The tradition ex expanded outward from Gobekli Tepe in all directions, and one of those directions was across Asia and into the Americas. Mm -hmm. um, Navajo Roundhouse is structurally and symbolically the same form as as one form of a Siberian yurt. Um, a Native American teepee is the same structural and symbolic form as another form of yurt that's actually called a teepee. So definitely there are connections there. I also see later connections. It looks as if when um, those on Orkney Island abandoned the island around 2600 BC, they also scattered in different directions and it looks like some of them ended up in Virginia and ended up in contact with people like the Hopi Indians, may have ended up as the Olmecs. Um, I see influences out of the Orkney Island era of the tradition uh, in the Americas. Uh, also, er earlier cycles than that, I, it looks like there were influences in Greenland that are all sort of Arctic Circle type earlier cycle um, structures and references. Mm. Uh, no. I don't have a plan right now to write a book about the Native American stuff, but mostly what I plan to write isn't what I end up writing. Right. More often than not, whatever it is I have in mind that I think is the next thing I'm going to write gets bumped by something that I end up writing about. So if you were going to write this, though, would you start by looking for connections between the symbology of the non-material material and seeing if there's some way that that connects or would that just like you said it would just it's it's whatever whatever trail of breadcrumbs leaves you leads you kind of a thing or um almost certainly it would start with language because there is the language points us to where the actual connections are and then then you can focus your effort on now what artifacts are there that support this or what um native american myths are there that support the idea but starting with language um the way the language works, because of these clustered meanings, if I can demonstrate that a concept is represented, say, in the Cherokee language with the same cluster of meanings that it is in Sanskrit or in um, the Dogon language, mm -hmm. then I have a basis of comparison that is not really questionable. It's, it's a, a coherent basis for comparison between the two. I can start from a point of strength saying here are two things that match because we have a cluster of things that match together. Hmm. Uh, so I would probably start with language and let that point me to everything else. Okay. Well, good questions from at uh, Nephthys on Twitter. I, he's got some numbers after that. I forget what they are, but go to at Nephthys. He's got all sorts of connections and um, ancient symbology. He's a huge fan of yours. Uh, so shout out oh, to great. him as well. Um, shout out to History Shift, shout out to Snake Brothers. And uh, yeah, so let's wrap this up and we'll do the extra few minutes. But let's plug your book. Your new book's coming out in July. What's the name of it again? It's called Primal Wisdom of the Ancients. It's from Inner Traditions and it's due in, in July. And the focus of the book is on the aspects of this tradition that argue that it must have been a carefully formulated instructional plan. Mm. Um, and there are quite a few of them, actually. And it's something that I've given a lot of thought to over the years and wanted to write about and finally took the time to sit down and write about. Um, uh, when you see how the elements of it um, relate to each other, what kinds of metaphors are used and how how knowledge is, is conveyed through symbols and through myths and through, by, through other um, um, techniques, 
you realize that someone put an awful lot of thought into how this was going to be laid out and how it was going to be presented. Uh, and once you get into the mindset of that, it makes it a lot easier to, to understand um, isolated symbols because whoever did this was a stickler for consistency. Um, sometimes I'm, I, I'm amused by how much of a stickler for consistency they were. Hmm. <laughs> it's almost hey. uh, OCD level. Yeah, I would know. <laughs> I would know about that. So, oh, uh, no. um, but so I'm excited for it. Well, let's have you back on after, uh, after it comes out, after I get a chance to read it, we'll have you back on and we'll talk about it. But, uh, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for being patient with the technical stuff and, oh, no uh, always a fun conversation. You're super insightful and obviously have done your homework. So that, that helps. Um, but yeah, check out his books. We've got the link below. Um, and, uh, don't forget to subscribe, subscribe to our channel. If you have not already check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content. We're about to do an extra 10, 15 minutes here with Laird and get weird. Um, so if you want to become a patron, just $2 a month and I'll have it posted up, uh, later tonight. So, but this, I, is, this is the, the unclothed portion of the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See the, the emperor has no clothes. That's, that's part, uh, guidance is advised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We got to change formats here for that one, but uh, <laughs> thanks again for uh, dealing with that. And uh, again, we'll have you back on you know, sometime in the middle of the summer and discuss all that. Cheers. Peace. Cheers.